Lord, we thank you that, God the Father, that you gave the Son authority. Authority to save or authority to execute judgment. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, Jesus. Uh, teach us under the authority of your word. May you speak through it in Jesus' name. Amen. The patience of uh, Alexander Kuzmin, the mayor of, the of a town in western Russia, has worn thin. Uh, recently, this mayor, mayor of Median, published 27 excuses. 27 excuses that he'll no longer tolerate in the workplace. All right, throughout this whole town. All right. Civil servants who use such excuses as, I don't know, it's lunchtime, <laughs> I was on sick leave at the time, it's not my job, <clears throat> I can't, and it's impossible, will lose their jobs. All right, they'll get the pink slip, it's over, it's done. Now I understand, in a different culture, this is Russia. And, and not only that, but we're talking like this is like Western Siberia. I looked it up on a map. And, and you, know what, you know what Siberia like, means in Russian? Anyone? I mean, neither. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it means like, middle of nowhere or left to die. I guess well, that's a loose translation. I'm just making up now. But how do you think these government workers responded? How do you think? Urgently be a good description. <laughs> they had a very a sense of urgency in how they responded when they knew they basically could give no more excuses. Um, why? Because the mayor has authority. He's issued an edict. Ratified. Put through. It's in. Plus, he lived in a really nice... Oh, it's kind of washed out. But he probably owned that entire condo complex up there too. So you can't mess with him if you want good board. We're going to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Luke 16, 13. This morning's sermon's entitled, I thought, I thought Jesus is patient with people to get on board. I thought Jesus is patient with people to get on board. Jesus is one who has authority, not over, just over your life and livelihood, like this mayor apparently did, but overall creation. And he isn't always talking up patience and you know, waiting, but he's also talking about the urgency of the moment. And he does this in Luke 16. So we'll see today in our next installment of the ongoing series, The Overlooked Jesus. Read with me Luke 16, verses 13 through 18. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone is forcefully urged into it. 
it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's a reading of God's word. In a nutshell this morning, if you remember nothing else, remember this, that Jesus has authority which calls for an urgent response. Jesus' authority calls for an urgent response in our lives. An authority like the mayor of Median, Russia, can hold earthly spoils and pleasures and blessings over our head, but Jesus holds the keys of life and death. So we're going to look this morning at all three aspects of Jesus' authority here in this passage. All three aspects. One, Jesus' authority to expose our hearts in the sin of our culture. Two, Jesus is the authoritative fulfillment of the law. Three, Jesus has authority to call it like he sees it. We'll talk about these things this morning. First, Jesus has authority to expose our hearts and the sin of our culture. Verses 13 through 15. This is a truly horrifying prospect, isn't it? That there is a person, a God in this creation, who has, at any time, can expose our hearts. However, he might like. Some of us, this is truly horrifying. When they heard Jesus say, allegiance to God or to money, but not both. What does it say they did? Verse 14. They ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. That, that verb, they ridicule, literally means in the Greek, they turned up their nose at Jesus. They turned up their nose at Jesus. The, the image is one of scoffing. And it seems like from the context, they were scoffing at Jesus' simple, naive, unsophisticated right, understanding of God and money. Right? So they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, if you really, if you really knew the law of God, you know there are ways to have both. Right? We know the law. This is what we do. That's what the Pharisees did. They took the law. They dissected every part of it. They, they, they made up laws to interpret those laws. Pharisees made up regulations that would allow them to both get rich while also still giving the technical appearance of sticking to the law, they did this by twisting the spirit of the law. Right? In other words, they'd find loopholes. This is why Jesus says that this appears just before men. It appears right before men, but God knows your hearts. 2 Timothy 4, 3, Paul, the Apostle Paul says this, the New Living Translation here, for a time is coming, that time is now, <laughs> a time is coming when people will no longer listen to right teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. It's not the first time Paul said this. It was the last, because this was probably Paul's last letter that he wrote. But the idea here is, 
You've all heard people say, right, that there are lots of different interpretations of the Bible, and you hear some, you hear some weird ones sometimes. You ever heard like a weird interpretation, like, well, because of this, and this, and this, and this thing here, and, and they me- like mess it up, and they move things around, and they bring in all these weird things, and you read it, and you're like, no, nah, it seems pretty clear, right? And hey, as a pastor, I, you know, I could, you know, I could pull that on you. God willing, I won't. But oftentimes, strange interpretations of Scripture aren't because of you know, academic objections, but because of sin objections. People want it to be true, and so they'll find someone who says it's true. <laughs> right? So, to illustrate this, I, uh, I really like bacon. All right? Love it. Uh, anyone here enjoy bacon? Be, and, and even some of you closet vegetarians. My mom's a vegetarian. All right? She says the one thing she misses is bacon. And uh, I don't blame her. So I was watching the, uh, I was watching, I don't know why I was watching this sometime, but this is a couple years ago. I was watching the Today Show on NBC. I don't know what would compel me to watch the Today Show for a long period of time. But uh, it's, it's a nice show. But there was one of these reports where an expert comes in and he, and he points at stuff and, and, and and she talks as fast as she can because she knows if she doesn't, Matt Lauer will cut to commercial and cut her off. She talks as fast as she can about health, right? And she's talking about ways to stay healthy, especially when you eat out. And she gave this report, apparently applauding bacon and sausage as healthy options when, when eating breakfast out. All right? And so I was like, yes, love it. And literally that day, I go to lunch with someone at the Waffle House, which is this place in the States where uh, it's, it's a wonderful place. It's dirty. It's got like an old jukebox. There's a woman named Flo who serves you. And she's like, what do you want to eat? It's great. Um, really, really lovely place. And, but I, but it's, it's cheap, and it's got great waffles, sausage, and bacon. So we were there, and this friend of mine, I were having lunch, and he was kind of going through the menu saying, what can I eat? I'm on this diet. I'm trying to stay healthy. I said, dude, bacon and sausage, man. Pile it on. It's good for you. Sizzle. Right? Now, why did I say this? Did I really believe NBC was the greatest authority on these matters? No. I just love bacon. And any time... Any opportunity to justify bacon as a healthy option, then I want to believe that, and I will accept that. Right? Hey, you hear me, sister. Thank you. So, but it leads to a serious thing, right? The serious idea that we do this when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to God. Something in our hearts, we have a desire. So, if we can find someone who can legitimize that desire who can put their stamp of approval on it. Ah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I can believe that. So what about us? Are we twisting something in our own hearts to suit our own sinful desires? Twisting God's word just enough. Second thing, Jesus is the authoritative fulfillment of the law. Verse 16 The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. I'll stop there. All of God's word in the Old Testament anticipates Jesus the Messiah and basically has a big, giant foam finger pointing towards him. 
It says the law and the prophets were preached until John. The law, well, let me explain this for a moment. God made a covenant with his people. I like to explain this further, but think of it like a contract. He says, I will bless you, I will take care of you, and will continue to do so if you respond to my love for you by obeying the law. That's why God gets the law, gives us the law. He gives us the law to bless us it's for our own good. But people didn't follow the law. They drifted far from it. That's why God sends the prophets. So you got the law and the prophets mentioned here in verse 16. I know when most of us think of prophet, or a lot of us might think of, you know, crystal ball, predicts the future. Right? That kind of idea. But the Old Testament prophet's primary role was as a covenant enforcer. If you can go back sometime and read the prophets and ask yourself the question, do I see the prophets mostly predicting the future? Or are they calling people back to the covenant that God made? Calling them back to his faithfulness and responding by obeying the law. Go back and look at that sometime. But anyway, John the Baptist is the last prophet. Jesus says this, up until John. John the Baptist is referring to here. Why is this? Because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and so he becomes the authoritative prophet who calls people into a new covenant. He alone is the authoritative prophet, fulfilled the law perfectly, can call people into a new covenant. One that was prophesied in Jeremiah 29, excuse me, 31. This new covenant basically said that everyone can have access to or have a personal relationship with God by trusting Jesus. Everyone can know the Lord. Jesus is the authoritative fulfillment of the law. He brings it to completion, ushers in a new covenant. Thirdly, Jesus has the authority to call it like he sees it, to interpret the law. Verse 17 and 18 say, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The idea here is Jesus is saying, that doesn't mean here's new covenants coming. Doesn't it mean the law we put away with it? What it means is what he's saying here is, I have the authority as God to interpret that law. You, you've been misunderstanding it. Misapplying it to life. I have the authority. And so, you get verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery. He who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. That's what we see here in verse 18. Jesus is taking an Old Testament law, a concept about being one flesh in marriage, and interpreting it further in order to demonstrate his authority to rightly interpret what God has said in the past. Does that make sense? So he's taking a concept from the, from the law and he's saying, I'm interpreting this further. I alone have the authority to do that. Now, I realize verse 18, you might, as a result of this, call me a wimp, uh, pansy, whatever you like. I'm not going to delve into a sermon about divorce here. Um, instead, I think it's more important this morning to see what function this verse plays in the passage. And that is that Jesus can take the law as the authority to interpret it further. Because he's the Messiah. Well, so what? Jesus has authority? Great. What does that mean for our lives? First of all, it calls us to an urgent response. And here's where we get to the center of the passage. Verse 16. Second part of verse 16 where he says, you know, 
All right, these things happened until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And you might read in your Bible, everyone forces his way into it. But it, you guys see a little, there's a number. If you're reading your Bible, there should be a little number next to that. And if you look at the bottom of your page, it says, or everyone is forcefully urged into it. I don't want to get too technical on this, but basically, for those of you who are interested, basically the Greek word for force is in the middle or passive voice. So it can mean everyone is using force, or it can mean everyone is being forced or forcefully urged into. It can mean the same things. It's, it's one spelling, but it can mean two different things in this particular voice. Basically, here's the point. This gives us a great opportunity. You're like, oh man, why does the Bible do this sometimes? Because it's like this little footnote and actually could change the whole meaning of this thing. Here's the beauty. It gives us an opportunity to really read God's word rightly. If you want to know the meaning of a verse, one of the most important things you can do is read up and read down. You've heard me say this before, I think. You read what's before and you read what's after. The context. What makes sense? Does it make sense that people are trying to get into the kingdom, they're listening to the good news, we all want to get in, we're, you know. No, the current reading doesn't make sense. The one that you see immediately, everyone's forcefully urged into it makes more sense. If everyone was trying to get into the kingdom through the good news, the Pharisees wouldn't be grumbling at the beginning of verse 15, or the beginning of chapter 15. Remember? They were grumbling. The Pharisees were grumbling at Jesus. And then even here, verse 14 of chapter 16, they actually now go to openly ridiculing Jesus. Remember, Jesus is speaking to them. The context says, no, not everyone's trying to get into the kingdom, listen to the good news, woohoo, like getting into some overcrowded nightclub, we're all rushing in, right? The context here is that Jesus is constantly putting the good news of the kingdom before them. He's constantly urging people towards the kingdom. He's constantly confronting people towards the kingdom. So, everyone is forcefully urged into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is being preached by the king who knows he's going to soon leave. And that creates urgency, doesn't it? That's the point here. If you forget all the technical jargon, there's a king... He's constantly confronting people because he knows he's going to leave soon. These are some of the last words you're going to hear from me. So I'm urging you to respond. Force your way in. It's cool because throughout Luke's gospel, people constantly speak about the authoritative words of Jesus. For instance, let's look at some of these here real quick. This is Jesus' first sermon. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. This is after his first sermon. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. It's on the screen. <laughs> marveled at the gracious words. Thanks. Thanks, Chet. Luke 4.32. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. They were all amazed. 436. They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Going, Luke 19.48. But they did not find anything they could do to harm him, for the people were hanging on his words. Anyway. And they were not able, in the presence of people, to catch him and what he said, but were marveling at his answer. They became silent. 
Next one. <laughs> Every day he was teaching at the temple, but at night he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to the temple to hear him. Luke 21, 37, 38. You see the idea here. This is a big theme in Luke. People marveled at the authority of Jesus' words. You know, I mean, it would have been awesome to be there. To just sit in the front row where we should all aim to sit. <laughs> right? And just soak up the words of Jesus. Just to have been there. But amazing. But here's the point. Jesus is, is the theme Luke is weaving. Jesus is saying, hey, you've recognized my authority. You've said it. You've mentioned it. You've sat here. You've mumbled it to each other. So respond urgently. That's what Jesus is saying. Respond urgently. There are a couple things we don't know, right? About life. We don't know when Jesus will return to take those who have trusted in him and to judge those who haven't. We don't know when Jesus will return and none of us know when we'll die. There are two things we know for sure. <laughs> we know that we don't know. And those sound like sermon cliches, right? You don't know when Jesus is returning. You don't know when you're going to die. But you cannot respond to the good news of Jesus after either have occurred. Does that create a sense of urgency for you? I wonder. But we've got problems with all this. We've got problems. Problem number one, we live in a culture that implicitly doesn't really like urgency. Right? We live in a culture, in a place where people don't like urgency. People who talk fast, insist on going somewhere or doing something, urge you to hurry up, push you towards making a decision, are described as, fill in the blank, annoying, hyper, uh, American, right? <laughs> we live in a place that was once called the island that time forgot, right? And... and a lot of us lo love this. I love this. I love changing lifestyle for, for Katie and I and our family. We love this. But on this island, it almost seems better to go with the flow. Just kind of be non-decisive so as not to offend. Right? Problem two, we live in a time in history that shudders at authority. And for good reason. Some of it's for good reason, right? We, we've all encountered authority figures or structures that have been abusive that have not treated people justly. But there's also a sense that we shudder at authority because authority calls people to change. Someone tries hard to persuade you to change. Someone asserts they know something you don't. You call that person, what, unfriendly, pushy, annoying, condescending. Again, better to just go with the flow and let people just do their thing. Other people just do their thing. That's a problem. When it comes to this sermon, this message, and Jesus' urgency with what he's saying to get into the kingdom, we got a problem. We don't like authority and we don't like urgency. But we got a solution. We've got a solution. And the solution, this is why I'll spend the rest of our time on this morning, can be found in Matthew 28 and with James Bond. All right? Now follow me on this. 
What is so urgent in this passage? Jesus says it's the kingdom. For those who haven't yet trusted Jesus, the kingdom is the most urgent thing in your life. There is a king who exposes our hearts and that of the culture. There's a king who fulfills the law that we couldn't live up to. And there's a king who tells us what life really means by authoritatively interpreting it for us. Interpreting hundreds of years of law for us. So, as he also says in verse 16, delivering the good news of that kingdom becomes crucial. Delivering the good news, which is the means to entering the kingdom, becomes urgent for those of us who have already trusted Jesus with our lives and are trusting Jesus with our lives. This becomes urgent. How then do Christians urgently transport the good news as Jesus did? How do Christians urgently transport the good news, especially in a culture that kind of chuckles at urgency, right? And during a time when we shudder at authority. How do we do this? Well, I told you, it's Matthew 28 and James Bond. We'll start with Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Jesus says this, the very end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Some of us are comfortable with authority. We're comfortable with the authority of Jesus. We love to sit under it. But we're paralyzed right, by even thinking of going. Going into the world. Going and living that out. Others of us, man, we love to go. We love to be in the world. We love to be out there. But we leave the authority at home. Let me explain here. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, present and future disciples. He asked that the Father would protect them from the world, from all the sin and evil that can corrupt disciples of Jesus. He asked the Father to protect them from that. But he makes sure to say, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. No, no. They're to reign in the world. But just not be like it. Jesus calls his disciples to be in the world, but not of it. Go into the world, but remain under Jesus' authority. You get this? Okay? How do we do that? How do I possibly do that? I mean, Jesus himself describes how corrupting, how tempting, how influential our culture and our world is. Pulling us into things constantly. How do we go out there and urgently share the good news without becoming corrupted? How do we do this? Well, easy. The name's Bond. James Bond. That's how you do it. James Bond. I thought this would be a good cross-cultural example for all of us here, because the British, if you're, if you're British, obviously Bond worked for the British Secret Intelligence, so you love them. All right? For Americans, Bond is basically the one thing that we still love about Great Britain. All right? All right? And for South Africans, you may not know this, but Bond did travel to Africa in The Spy Who Loved Me. So there you got that connection there. It was the northern part of Africa, but let's not get technical. And for Kamanians, who can forget the Bond film that took place right here in Cayman? Nope. Yep, there it is. All right, remember this one? That was a great one. <laughs> I didn't really work hard on that Photoshop, did I? It's okay. I think it was called uh, The Pirate Who Loved Me. 
Um, it was a great film. It didn't really make it to the silver screen, but uh, got cut. So uh, in most Bond movies, I don't have anything for Canadians, sorry. Uh, in most Bond movies, Bond finds himself at a party or casino, right? Right? And what is he doing at these parties? Well, one, he's enjoying them. We always find uh, this is why a lot of men love James Bond. Right? He's enjoying the party. He's playing a little poker, blackjack. He's saying clever lines. And he's with women. He's, you might say he's bonding with women. <laughs> yeah, I deserve some booze. That's good. All right, so, uh, but what is he also doing? He's hatching a plan. He's gathering intelligence, right? He's, he's looking at the guy with the eye patch and wondering if he has x-ray vision, right? He's like always doing that. He is always on his mission. Yes, he's enjoying the party, but he never forgets his mission. That's what I love about James Bond. We can take a lesson from him. How do we stay holy? How do we stay not of the world, but go into it? We go into the world with a mission. This is how you remain in the world, but don't become like it. You go into the world, but always with a mission in mind. You enjoy life, not, maybe not exactly like Bond, right? Don't want to be womanizing, that sort of thing, or masculinizing for the women out there. Enjoy life, get out there, but always with a mission in mind, and that mission coming first. Does that make sense? Some of us are comfortable with the authority, but we're paralyzed even thinking of going. We have the authority, but there's no urgency. All right, if you're in this camp, you love the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 11. Remember? Remember the story Martha was doing. She's always doing and going, but there's Mary just kind of, just sit at Jesus' feet, right? And Jesus commends her. He says, Mary has chosen what's better, to be under my authority, to listen to me. Very much needed. But if you're in this camp, you often stay at Jesus' feet even when he asks you to go. And we forget that this same Mary left Jesus' feet, didn't she? She was the one who journeyed with Jesus to the cross. She was the first to go to the tomb. First to witness Jesus after he rose from the dead and the first to boldly share the good news amazing news of Jesus' resurrection. We need these people of death. We need such people of death who have sat under Jesus' authority. We need them out there. So if you're in this camp, my question for you is, how are you out there? How are you intentionally putting yourself out there? Others of us love to go. We love getting out there, but we leave the authority and his mission at home. A lot of us like to be out there. We were out there last night, for the sakes. In this case, you're urgent to get out there and go, but often forgetful of authority. Now, if you're in this camp, you happen to like the story of Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors in Luke 5. You remember this? Jesus calls Levi, later called Matthew, to be a disciple. And Levi clearly is in a good mood about this. He's very grateful. So he gets a, makes a bunch of food, Immediately throws a party, calls all his friends over. They happen to be tax collectors and sinners. And there's no mention of Jesus even preaching. Just a good time, man. But actually there is. Uh, Jesus does preach, but it's to the religious people, to the Pharisees. 
we love this image of Jesus just being with people, just hanging out with sinners. Of course, we forget Jesus' words here in verse 16, that he is forcefully urging people into the kingdom. We forget that Jesus is constantly confronting people with the good news over a period of just three years. His first chance to read the Bible in church. What does he do? Jesus is a conservative passage. No, he reads about himself. The coming Messiah from the book of Isaiah. Jesus, tired from a long journey, sits down next to a well. Woman comes up, unknowing what she's walking into. And her heart, secretly adulterous. She's just coming to get a little bit of water. Boom! Confrontation. When we say things... We like to say that Jesus hangs out with people at bars and at brothels. But he's always remembering his Father's authority and always carrying his mission with him in those same instances. He does not leave them at home. He brings them with him. Uh, some time ago, I was a youth pastor near Chicago back in the day, and a friend of mine there in Chicago invited me along to what he enjoyed most was sharing the good news in one of the hardest places to share it. Right? What do you think? One of the hardest places among the poor? In the inner city? In jails? No. In suburban high schools. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> you remember this? You remember high school? Yeah, yeah. Rough time. Um, if you think you're something and you're need of just a little bit of humbling in your life, just walk into a high school campus. Right? Let the memories come flooding back. My friend Wes Highstand for lunch, I met him for lunch at uh, this last week at his place of work. Wes is a high school teacher. So I was walking back from his classroom past a gauntlet of high schoolers who reminded me of my place, which is a very uncool, unhip, and unaccepted person with flaws and insecurities. If you're in high schoolers, they will remind you of who you are. Well, anyway, back to my friend in Chicago. I watched him at a high school build relationships, even share the good news with some students. Afterwards, in the parking lot, I was about to encourage him, to say some words of encouragement, when he turned to me suddenly with a desperate sort of look. He just said to me, Dude, you've got to take me to church on Sunday. Right? I'm feeling so empty. What well, turns out, his relationship with God was running dry. His marriage was struggling. And no one really wanted to know him, or really did know him. And certainly no one was speaking into his life. Friends, everyone needs fellowship. Everyone needs to come back to fellowship to be reminded of his authority through his word. Come back to fellowship to be reminded not only of the assigned mission, but just to sit at Jesus' feet. Right? To sit at Jesus' feet again and learn from his word. Oh, that's why the local church is a blessed thing. You don't need to sit under Jesus' authority even just for your own sake. You also need to do it for their sake. For the world's sake. Friends, they need to see something radical in you. If we think by simply relating and being the same, 
and sameness help the gospel message? It doesn't. Friends, the world is not impressed by that. They've been there. They've tried that. Most people who are ready for Jesus need to see a holiness, a saltiness, a difference, because they've tried average. And they've been found left wanting. So I'll end here. Friends, I think God's calling us to do something radical as a church. And each one of us are called to go into the world with Jesus' authority by going into the world with a mission. Let's pray. Lord, we know our mission. You say it here in the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Go therefore, because of that authority, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. Lord, for those of us who don't know what it is to be a disciple, well, we're still teetering. We don't, we're not sure about discipleship because it's hard and the cost is great. Remind us of the urgency of it all. We don't know when our time will come, either through Jesus' return or through our own death, Lord. This is a matter of urgency. May we respond, those of us in this situation, with a sense of urgency. Spirit, put that on our hearts that we might return to asking hard questions or asking questions about faith or examining your word again or going to a good Christian friend and just talking with them. Put that urgency among those who have not yet become your disciple. For those of us who are, who have trusted our lives to you, remind us, Lord, your authority, your kingdom, and that we have something great, the keys to your kingdom. We hold these keys, which are the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So you call us to urgently join with you in that mission, to urgently hold the kingdom up in front of people's faces, Lord urgently present the good news to them. Lord, for some of us, as we think about going, Lord, it's a paralyzing thing. We'd much rather send your authority. Worry about our holiness, Lord. Be not of the world. I challenge us. Remind us of the urgency before us. For those of us who don't mind going into the world, being part of what's going on out there and being part of friends and making relationships remind us always of the mission. Put the mission at the forefront and remember that we're under your authority, Jesus. For all of us, we remember that it's not just Jesus that you have authority. You've given us authority through the gospel. Your word says in Romans 1, 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We hold in our hands this power Lord, help us not keep it to ourselves, but discharge it dutifully. And Jesus, here dutifully, means urgently. We ask this in the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.